0: just a brief review of last week as I remember it in my mind. You know, I just, I'm trying to keep encapsulated in my mind that this, uh, where we're at in the life of our Savior right now, and and uh, <clears throat> I wish, you know, that I could have timed it where, you know, at Easter we'd be at the resurrection, but it's not going to happen. So um, anyway, but... I guess, and, and I really, this really got ingrained in my mind back years ago when Shane preached through Luke to to slow down this week. In my mind, we can read, you know, like chapter 10 through the end of Mark and think, you know, at least this is how my mind works. You know, that this probably was a long period of time, but I mean, it wasn't. You know, it's Tuesday, what we're looking at today. And, uh, you know, the triumphal entry was... Um, you know, was most scholars say Sunday, you know, well, that was like three or four lessons ago for us. So my mind can kind of race way ahead. And I, I'd like to slow down and think of, you know, what was really going on in, in in not only our Savior's life, but in the lives of the 12 that are with him. I mean, these are ordinary dudes like us, right? And they're they're just flabbergasted. I would think they would have to be. So last week, you know, the I guess let me say the week before we ended with them going into the temple and Jesus just simply looking around, kind of surveying the situation, right? And then they go back, they leave Jerusalem and go back to Bethany. Last week, they come back in, they go by the tree and, you know, should have had figs on it, even though the scripture says, as we talked about, it was a little puzzling to me. It wasn't the season for figs and Jesus should have known that, would have known that, being God, you know, so why did he go to it looking for food, and we talked about all that, you know, and, and we're going to look at that lesson today, but I think what struck me more than that last week was then when he went into the temple, and he, he the violent act of turning the tables over, and and the money flying everywhere, and everybody scrambling, you know, pigeons are flying, and you know, just that whole scene that he just the day before, that was Monday, and the day before he came in as as king of Israel on the donkey, right? And then we said last week that he came in as the high priest because he came into the temple. Not only did he disrupt the commerce, but he he disrupted the worship. He stopped the worship, and it hadn't taken on like that sense, right? And even more astounding as, as we looked at that to me was the audacity I guess that's okay to say of the Jews to have been doing that in the court of the Gentiles that would have been us, the place that we could go worship. They weren't doing it in their part of the temple they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles so now I think that was another thing that angered our Lord was that <clears throat> now uh, not only were they making a mockery of their worship, but the Gentiles couldn't even come in and worship, right? And we looked at that part of... The reason I say that I think he stopped their worship is because the uh, I think the King James uh, uh, got the word right there that he didn't allow anybody to carry a vessel through. It was a common thoroughfare <clears throat> through the temple shortcut. And I'm sure people were carrying all kinds of stuff in... There's a shortcut through the city, but the word vessel is something that would have been used in the temple sacrifice system, and he stopped that. So, boom, they're done. And, uh, you know, then that, the, that stuff carried on all day long, and, and somebody said last week, which I thought about after the class was really good, of, you know, that the authorities, now I think next week we'll see, they do kind of come on the scene, but nobody stopped them. You know i mean if if he comes in and John Michael's a money changer and he flips his table and all his coins go, and I'm down the row a little bit, i'm gonna start gathering my stuff up you know and and uh you know and i'm gonna or or at least I'm gonna send somebody over there, Kenny's pretty good size, I'd probably send him go over there and stop him. You know this is my stuff here, nobody got involved, you know, and that's you know. I don't know if they were just all jaw-dropped over that. I don't know what was going on. So anyway, that carries on all day long. And then they go back, as it was their custom where we ended last week, they go back back to Bethany to spend the night. So we'll pick up, we'll read verses 20 through 25. Mark 11. Mark 11, verse... Verses 20 to 25. <clears throat> and Mark 11, verse 20, says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. That just blows me away. We'll talk a lot about that. So here they are, coming again, morning time, right? They passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree, withered away, not just the branches, not just the leaves, withered away to its roots. In other words, the whole thing, right? So, and only Matthew and Mark record this lesson, which Jesus is drawing out for his disciples from, from this withered tree. and. It's Tuesday morning, as I said, and, and all the commentators, and you'll see in footnotes in your Bible, um, they call this... What, what week do we call this? The what? Passion. The Passion Week. You ever think about that? That bugged me this week. Well, what in the world does that mean? Maybe you all know. I mean, I had no clue. I looked it up, and the word passion comes from the Greek word "the suffering, the same word for suffering. And to me, that makes... I like that better. I don't know. If I ever write a book on this week of the Lord's life, I'll call it the week of suffering rather. Maybe it's cuz of the passion that he had for us. I don't know, but anyway, Passion Week. I said most uh commentators think that it's Tuesday. Uh, we're not going to go down that path. I started to, but my mind just started spinning as I tried to figure that out. So <clears throat> I'm going to go with the majority on that one. It was early. They're passing by the fig tree, and they saw its condition, totally withered. Now, what's true, again, I mean, what's true about this morning compared to yesterday morning? Jesus was hungry yesterday morning, doesn't say anything about the hunger now, right? And I don't know if he ate breakfast today, and he didn't yesterday, but no mention of it this morning, and... Just the morning before, it was full of green leaves, and remember we said that uh, a fig tree has great big leaves, right? If you've got one in your yard, you know that. Now it's all dried up, dried up from the tip of the branches to the roots. Also, just as a side note, I think uh, God invented the first camouflage, and it wasn't real tree oak pattern. It was fig patterns, right? Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they put on fig leaves and they climbed up in a fig tree, so and they were hiding from God. So, these figs in Scripture are quite interesting. That it just and we looked at that last week. Of the, I think I said last week there were over 50 references to Israel and fig trees. <clears throat> so, really interesting. So, just the morning before, here it was lush public place. Fig tree. Everybody could see it. Now it's dried up. Have you ever had a dried up? Yes, sir. I'll give you another
1: alternative to the fig tree mm-hmm. and why it was
0: without fruit.
1: Okay. The fig requires a small wasp to pollinate it. Okay. And the wasp, like a hornet, is sometimes used as persecution. And if a church doesn't have the persecution, it seems to dry up. Well, that's it's good. Hmm. And it talks about how in China and Russia and South Asia, the persecution has made the Christian movement explode.
0: Right, good, that's good. And
1: yet we look at our churches here in America, and they seem to be withering. But they've got lots of good leaves. Yeah,
0: that's right. They sure do. (laughs) Lots of big, showy leaves. That's really good. Thank you. Appreciate that. So. Uh, that's a great point, and I think we'll see that in, the, in as this lesson goes on in, in this uh, withering here. So, you ever have a withered plant in your yard? Certainly, right? We all do. Things, whether insects get them, and so uh, how, how do you tell if that plant in your yard is just maybe got a disease, and, and it's and, and it is still alive or it's really dead? How do y'all tell? I got my method, huh? Well, the leaves are all gone. It's, we're past that. Start pruning, it back. start pruning it back. And what are you looking for when you're pruning? Green. green. That's right. I, I don't even go to that much effort first. I take my thumbnail and I just scratch the bark. and if it's green, then I kind of then I'll start all that work, you know, maybe throw some fertilizer around it, try and get it going. But this tree had no green. It was withered from the roots upward. You know, and that's an amazing thing to happen that quick, right? Well, Peter remembered, and once he connected the condition of the tree with the word of Jesus, he knew that this withering overnight would not be an ordinary event, right? I think this was probably a very sizable fig tree because yesterday, I mean, yeah, yesterday they, last week us, they saw it, it said they saw it from a distance. You know, the fact that you could tell from a ways away, it must have been a pretty, pretty good-sized fig tree. And so Peter sees this, and he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And he's asking Jesus to look at the, at the tree. The effects of Jesus' words on the tree were, were obvious to them all. It says in verse 20, they saw the fig tree. So everybody sees it. Peter calls Jesus' attention to it. And Jesus answers, have faith in God. You know, I would have been, what? What do you mean, have faith in God? But, and, and Jesus starts to unpack this for us now. And, and he isn't telling us the secret of cursing fig trees, okay? <laughs> He's telling us the secret of how to live so that we won't be cursed. I think that's the key point. Israel was cursed because they had lost faith in God and it had substituted as we saw last week empty rituals and meaningless performance just what we were talking about I can't remember your first name Uh, you know Bob Bob Stang right and you know as Bob was saying you know all this showy stuff but we've lost it and Israel had lost their loving, obedient relationship with God, and they had made a mockery out of the temple and what was going on there. Their their religion was simply going through the motions, and it was that outward show with inward, unreal, hypocritical worship. And, you know, I just, I, just even standing here saying those words and thinking that, I hope and pray that in the next hour, when I go in there to worship God in music and hearing the word preached, that that, that won't be said of me at noon, right? I, that's convicting to me. I, sometimes I don't like studying this stuff because it makes me realize how messed up I really am. But um, Their faith in God was dead, so Jesus says, have faith in God. He's telling his disciples, you know, you guys just saw that their faith is totally dead. You need to have faith in God. Well, as much as that was true for those 12 guys, it's true for us here today as well. Now, the word faith comes from a Greek word or is a Greek word, pistis. The Strong's Dictionary or Concordance defines that as persuasion. Credence, moral conviction, especially reliance upon Christ for salvation, assurance, belief, belief, faith, fidelity, and it has a secondary meaning of an assurance or a guarantee. So <clears throat> that I got to this point in studying this, and I came to the question of, okay, well then what is faith in God? You know, what is that? You know, we I commonly just come up with the word, well, it's trust. But again, as I started unpacking there's a whole lot more to it than that, right? So I want to look at that for a minute and just say first that faith is dependent on what can be known about whatever it is you're having faith in. In particular for us today, faith is dependent on what can be known about God. And even more significantly in the New Testament, it involves us in coming to a knowledge of God himself, uh, now, I think that 's expressed really well by Jesus in his high priestly prayer of john seventeen three i 'll read it for you. It says, "And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I, I think again, the words of Jesus here are to be understood in the light of John one eighteen, which says, No one has ever seen God." The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known Now, this really got me I thought this was so cool when I discovered this this week. The Greek verb made known in that text is from the is is the root from which we get the word exegesis, the explanation and the exposition of scripture you know we say our Church is an is a expositionally preaching church. We exegete the scriptures. We make them known. And that's what the verb in that text of John one eighteen is saying, that Jesus has made him known. Jesus is the exegesis of God. And he makes him clearly known to us. And you find that same teaching in Matthew 11.27 where it says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So the revelation of the Father by the Son to the disciples, and through faith, brings them to the knowledge of God, right? Because, I mean, I've often said, you know, I mean, we live in the Bible Belt, and um, you know, if we were to go to the outlet mall later this afternoon and we all surveyed 20 people each, you know, based on where we live, I think everybody would say, yeah, I know God. I know Jesus. I know all about that. And But that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about a, a true knowledge of God that is only made known to us through Christ and his working in our lives. So... All trust is ultimately dependent on knowledge. Are you all okay with that?
1: The other uh, understanding of the word knowledge is back to the Old Testament. Adam and Eve knew, he knew. Sure. And it's uh,
0: translated intimate relationship. Right. And that I was my that third line down here. It's That's that's the same thing. That's exactly right. I I wrote it's the deep personal relationship of a man and his wife. Is described in those terms, you know. And if, if you're married and you have that kind of that relationship, then that's the same knowledge that you have of God—that intimate, personal knowledge of God. That just, in my mind, really shrunk true belief, did it not? I mean, it really shrunk it. So, you know, the, the you know, I mean, actually, if you think about this. Um, that's the problem, you know. If if we had a visitor in church today, you know, I'm not gonna pull out my credit card and say, "Hey, man, would you would you keep this for me? I got to go over here, and I don't want to take it with me. I don't know that person, so I don't trust him." But I, I, I may, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of who in the room I know the best, um, who I've known the longest. But you know what I mean. You know, we we trust things to people that we know, and and. You know I'm sure you know just like I do lots of people that say they have a relationship with God or they have tons of head knowledge of God, but you can tell that they don't have a relationship with god right that's That's what we're talking about. This kind of knowledge doesn't mean that we that we analyze God you know from a distance, scrutinizing everything about him you know very dispassionately, if you could think of again back to a marriage relationship, that's not how that goes, right. It's the kind of knowledge that brings us into an immediate contact with God himself. And, you know, when you really think about it, there's there's no greater privilege open to us than knowing God. And that is held out to us through faith. So, believing in Christ means assenting to the truth about Christ as well as coming to know him personally. So, I mean, think about Thomas, you know, um, As I say, faith is more than assent, but it's never less than assent. Thomas's faith in the risen Christ was assent to the fact of the resurrection, but it was more than that because it was a heart that really acknowledged that when he said, my Lord and my God. So trust in Christ is the heart of faith. And again, another example of people that saw him, talked to him, would say they knew him, but he didn't entrust themselves to him because they were lacking faith they were just saying they knew him because of the works that they saw him do that in John 2 23 through 25 he decide, he he declined to entrust himself to them there's a, a lot of people that would struggle with a statement like that um but i mean the rich young ruler would have been a guy like that wouldn't he so um, to summons, the, the summons to Christ constantly appears in his invitation to follow him. Again, Matthew gives us an account in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn, there's the knowledge from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. So faith means abiding in Christ. You see that in John 15. It means receiving Christ, John 1, 12. But as many as received, right? And therefore embracing him in total trust. But here's where it falls apart, I think, for a lot of folks is that that kind of trust is always costly because it involves surrendering ourselves, right? And that's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke Jesus doesn't simply speak of faith, but he also ties the concept of carrying your cross with that. You know, Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to come after me, he must, what? Deny himself. Have you ever unpacked that? That many means just disassociate with you. That means think of the most despicable person in the world. I don't know who pops into your mind with that. Don't say. Uh, but... That you wouldn't no more spend 15 seconds with that person. You just can't, you just could not tolerate a millisecond being in the presence of that person. That's you. When you get there, when you know that you are the worst person in the world for you to hang out with, that's what he's talking about, about denying yourself. I know for a fact that if I hang out with me, You know, it's going to take me down a path that I don't need to go down. You know, I always say the middle letter in pride is I, middle letter in sin is I, middle letter in Tim, I. (laughs) You know, I am going to get me in trouble. I've got to deny me, I got to get away from me. That's what having faith is, that's what we're talking about, taking the cross. That's what emphasizes what faith involves. So, it means practical recognition that Jesus is Lord of our lives. It means forsaking everything for the sake of following him. I mean, look at Moses in Hebrews 11, right? For him, it meant the renunciation of worldly honor and wealth. Boy, that'd be a hard one, wouldn't it? Worldly honor and wealth. It meant commitment to people who would suffer constant reproach rather than acceptance, and experiencing, think of this phrase, Moses could have experienced the pleasures of sin, it sounds kind of weird, doesn't it, the pleasures of sin, but can you think of any sin that's not pleasurable, at least to start, granted down here somewhere it's not, but I mean it wouldn't work if it was down here, up here, right, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do it. I don't know. We're pretty bad. Maybe we would. But you get the point there. Um, I often talk when I have spoken with uh, young people school age about drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, I make the statement, you know, that if the first time you snorted a line of cocaine, your nose fell off. Literally, you know, there it is on the table. Of course, blood's going to be coming out of your face and you go see Dr. Ryan with your nose in a towel and another one or a know, you might think the next time before you snort some cocaine, this might not be a good idea. Last time my nose fell off. So, you know, the, but sin doesn't work that way. It, it promises something up front and Moses didn't do any of that to start with. So um, why, why would he do that? Why would he abandon the pleasures of this world to live a life of faith. And the answer comes to <clears throat> to us in Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, which says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So a sure mark of a man of faith is a man that commits himself to Christ alone as his Lord. So then the next logical question for my mind was, well then, where do we get this faith, right? Where does it come from? How do I get it? And... Um, My views have changed in this uh, over my Christian life, and I would say now that true faith, saving, trusting faith, which, by the way, is our response to the grace of God, but it is a gift from God. It's not something that we conjure up. And I'll never forget when I learned this. I was reading a book. I'd been saved probably three years Now I was reading a book uh, by A.W. Pink called The Sovereignty of God. If you've never read it, you ought to read it. And I remember reading Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 in that book, which says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. And then Pink started to unpack that. And as he explained that what that verse is saying, it is the gift of God. He's talking about the faith, and that was twenty-something years ago that I read that. And but this is how I, I remember that: is that it can't be the grace is the free gift of God because what is grace? It's a free gift of God. So why would he say you've been saved by grace through faith and it's not your own doing? It's a gift of God, or you could say you 're saved by the gift of God through faith it 's not your own doing it 's the gift of God I mean that would that just doesn 't make sense. so the faith is a gift of God, and I remember I kid you not, I was laying in our bed upstairs reading that kit was downstairs with the kids. I came flying downstairs with my finger on the point, and I said, "Listen to this and i said i 've had it all wrong I, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about so You know, as I showed her that, I mean, it opened our eyes to a whole... That made me realize God is sovereign in salvation. He's the one that did this. I didn't have squat to do with it, right? God did this to me. And that then gave me a whole new motivation for worshiping him and serving him. So... That faith, which we got to have to believe and trust, is ours only because God created it within our hearts. Uh, commentator Hendrickson says this about faith. He says, faith is the soul's window through which God's love comes pouring in. Isn't that good? He says, it's the open hand whereby man reaches out to God the giver. Faith is the coupling that links man's train to God's engine. I'm a trained man. I think, Ronnie, you're a trained man too, aren't you? Isn't that good? I've been trained well. <laughs> the, it, he, he goes on, he says, the trunk of salvation's, faith is the trunk of salvation's tree whose root is grace and whose fruit is good works. He goes on and says, faith was the means of Abraham's justification. Faith was the magnet that drew Moses away from the pleasures of Egypt. So that he threw his lot with God's sorely afflicted people. Faith was the force that overthrew Jericho's wall. Faith was the secret that enabled Ruth to make her stirring confession. Faith was the weapon that killed Goliath. Faith was the shield that protected Job in the midst of his trials. Faith was the muzzle that closed the mouth of Daniel's lions. Scripture in other places describes faith in Deuteronomy 33, 27, as leaning on the everlasting arms of God. Psalm 37, 5, committing our way to the Lord, trusting him, knowing that he will do whatever is best. Faith uh, is described as well as receiving the kingdom of God as a little child. We saw that a couple weeks ago in Mark 10, 15. It's being sure of what we hope for and being convinced of what we don't see, right? Hebrews 11:1. It's the victory that overcomes the world in 1 John 5. So, I mean, that broadened my understanding of faith. Uh, I hope it did it for you, but I wanted to know more about it. It's not just walking over to the light switch and flicking it and having faith that the electricity is going to flow. There's a lot more to it, right? If you undo the wires there, the electricity is still flowing, but... How would you know? I mean, grab those wires, you would know. Maybe that's, (laughs) then you'd have faith that it's there, right? But uh, so back to Mark 11. Um, After all that, Peter told Jesus to look at the tree. Jesus answers the whole group again, and he says, Have faith in God. Um, So I think they're all surprised at the revelation of the power of Jesus' words with the tree there. You know, if you and I cut off a branch of our tree today and just lay it in the driveway, that whole tree is not going to be, that whole branch isn't going to be withered tomorrow. You know, in a few hours, this this had instant impact, withered that tree. And this was really to direct their attention, this was the key for me, to the source of the power that Jesus had displayed. The withered tree gave them a vivid demonstration of God's power, of Jesus' power. Faith is the answer, whether it was for Israel then or for us today when when we become unfruitful, right? It's very true in my life that when I feel dried up, unfruitful, wasted, withered, that I need to trust him more, obey him, seek him, and let him make my life fruitful again because what? He never fails, right? That's where I come back. So, again, think what's running through these guys' minds, all that they've seen. So here they are now standing there by the withered tree. Jesus says, have faith in God. Then he continues in verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So the Dictionary of New Testament Theology says this about this verse. It says, quote, the distinctive feature of faith in this passage consists in the fact that it presents the believer with unlimited possibilities. Think about that for a minute. And Jesus especially summons his disciples to boundless faith. That, that resource goes on and says, the picture of faith moving mountains in verse 23 confirms the word of power that is able to transform created order. The instructions to the disciples in verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, it will be yours, shows the connection in the teaching between the promise that rests upon the word of power, Christ, and prayer. The prayer... Prayer is the prerequisite of the word of power, end quote. So what Jesus is saying here with this talk of moving mountains into the sea is that to have faith in God at all times is going to be very difficult, right? As difficult as it would be for you to move a mountain into the sea. So how about you? Maybe it's hard to have faith in God when someone you love is really sick. Or you just lost your job. Your spouse just left you. Child in rebellion. Just got hit head on by a drunk driver. You know, all those things. Maybe you're cutting the grass and the lawnmower just broke. Right? All those things. It's hard to have faith in God in difficult situations, and God brings difficult situations into our lives. Those are the mountains that stand in the way of faith, and they make it difficult to believe sometimes, right? It does to me. Um, Have you experienced any obstacles lately? Did Israel experience any obstacles? Certainly, right? All the circumstances that caused doubt and fear in their lives were like a mountain that was standing in the pathway of faith. So Jesus says, if you ask in faith, that mountain will be removed. So bottom line is, this is a lesson on prayer. The whole thing, yes, sir.
1: To pray effectively, you need to faith in God, not faith in the object of your request. If you focus only on your request, you will be left with nothing if your request is refused.
0: Sure, that's good, and and we're going to unpack that right here because we're, we're going to look at several scriptures here that flat out say, "If you ask, you get." Now. You've probably seen the guys on TV as I have that teach that. Well, the Bible teaches that, so something's wrong, right? Well, they got it wrong. The Bible doesn't have it wrong, so we got to we got to understand that we really do, or we come out of this with a false understanding, right? So, Jesus was probably for visual illustration talking about the Mount of Olives, which they were was right there. The Dead Sea was right there, but. He was not referring to physically casting the mountain into the sea, right um, he he uh, says in verse twenty three whoever says that this mountain be taken up and thrown in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass it'll be done for him that that this is is um how do you say? hyperbole this is hyperbole right but now listen, interestingly, rabbis who demonstrated unusual ability to solve very difficult problems for their people, were sometimes referred to as removers or rooters up of mountains. Right? Wouldn't that be great? You know, people that I know, and hopefully you've got some people in your life like this that I would call a prayer warrior. You know, i got a few people that I know. If i got something, you know, that I want more than me praying about it, that I call these people, you know, I would call them, they're rooters up of mountains. They're movers of mountains. So... Jesus' point here is that when, when confronted by an overwhelming issue with no apparent human solution, if a believer at that point does not doubt, very hard to do, right? Does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus Christ is saying that. Let that sink in for a second, right? So this is a picture of what is utterly impossible with man can be accomplished through faith As Bob said, faith in the power of God. Not faith in me or you, but faith in the power of God. But we got to be careful, as I said, because many false teachers say that the doubt that Jesus is referring to here is a believer doubting their faith. You're sick in that hospital bed because you don't have enough faith. I've got my daughter-in-law's uncle is one of those kind of preachers. And when his mom was dying, my daughter-in-law's grandma, who I knew, great Christian lady, he told her, get up out of that bed. If you can't get out of that bed, you don't have faith. She couldn't go and meet her Savior in peace because he was making her question her faith falsely, right? I mean, it's horrible. Um, So we have to remember, as, as we've said, that faith in itself has no power. Right? It merely accesses God's power. And uh, the caution here, of course, is then doubting God's nature and God's power. James writes in James 1, uh, 6 and 8, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So Jesus says, verse 23 again, whoever believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So, believes here denotes a continuing attitude of trust that the petition will be granted, that what he says is pointing to the particular prayer itself will come to pass is as the assurance that it's going to come. But, interesting as well, is Jesus sets no limits to the possibilities of prayer. No limits. But... such such successful praying must have a true foundation. And this is where it unravels for so many people, right? The one praying can have this kind of confidence only if they're sure what they're asking for is in harmony with the will of God. As Bob said, this confidence comes through the Holy Spirit and the Bible. And that's why in verse 24, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So here you got the prayer is is suggesting a reverential communion with God is the giver of the answer. Why reverential communion? Why would I throw that word in there? What do you think? What's the significance of reverential communion? What do you think? Tim, I don't think you can even believe in your heart unless God gives that to you. Sure.
1: Mm-hmm. until he gives you that assurance that he's going to answer eventually and
0: mm-hmm. you begin to trust that and you believe in the heart, but it doesn't come right away. Right, we may be dead when he answers. George Mueller, right? George Mueller prayed for three of his buddies, I think it was, for over 50 years. And one of them got saved like, I can't remember, does anybody remember? One of them got saved like 15 years in, another one 30, and the last one like The 50th year, or something, you know, and but he never quit. He believed the whole time that God would do that. So, whatever you ask in prayer, right, reverentially, you know, this isn't a flippancy, you know, this is a reverence to God. Whatever you ask, he that's what he says, right? Whatever you ask reflects no limits to the request, but it's not a carte blanche guarantee to grant all our greedy, selfish requests, right? That's not what we're talking about here. Psalm 8411 says, and it is true because it's in the Bible, it says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But that promise is qualified, as all prayer requests are, with the consistency of God's will. That's what we got to remember, because James cautions us in James four, three. You ask and you don't receive. Why? You ask, you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own desires, your own passions. I said we were going to look in depth at a lot of scriptures in John. We don't have time. I'm going to read the references. And you can write these down. Jesus stressed that truth to the apostles in the upper room over and over. John 14:13 and 14. John 15, 7, John 15, 16, John 16, 23, and 24. All of those he, he talks about asking, and you will receive. So we as believers are called to pour out our hearts to God in persistent, passionate prayer, but our prayers must always, always, always be qualified by the desire that his will is greater purer and wiser than anything we could imagine. And that, when you think about it, is going to negate a lot of what you're going to pray for. Then he says, believe that you have received it and it'll be yours. So that that applies the assurance of verse 23 to the one praying. Believe and it'll be yours. So this is saying that faith accepts the petition as already being granted. Another commentator named, uh, last name Lane, says... The man who bows his head before the hidden glory of God in the fullness of faith does so in the certainty that God can deal with every situation and any difficulty and that with him nothing is impossible. And remember Mark 10:27 uh, when Jesus said that nothing is impossible with God. 1 John 5:13 through 15 says I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. I mean, this is true stuff. This is what the Bible's telling us. Uh, another commentator, I, I just kept finding all these great quotes by these guys. This guy's name, I think, is Scroggie. It says, To faith, God's promise is as good as his performance, and so the believing soul enjoys the answer before it arrives. Isn't that good? Jesus then introduces another essential condition for effective praying. He says in verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Standing was a common posture for prayer. So was kneeling. So was lying prostrate on the ground was very common. Lifting up of hands during prayer was very common. He says whenever you stand praying, that's the posture he refers to here, if you have anything against anyone. So... We're always to have a forgiving attitude, right? And this is kind of, Jesus has taken the lesson now. Okay, I just told you that all this stuff can be yours, but you got to have this going on in your life in order to even pray properly to me, a forgiving attitude. I think the forgiving balances the belief in the previous verses that we looked at. Successful praying requires forgiving as well as believing. Now, of course, we're talking about relational forgiveness, um, you know the passage uh, many times um, comes into my mind during communion time at our church. You know, if you have, if your brother has anything against you, leave your altar at the gift and go be reconciled. That's what he's talking about in relational forgiveness. To attempt to pray while holding on to an unforgiving attitude against another person is self-defeating. Remember Ephesians four thirty-two: Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. What? forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the bottom line is we cannot accept the full gracious forgiveness of God and then be unforgiving of somebody else. Now you'll notice that uh, verse 26 in the ESV it goes from verse 25 to 27. Second time we've seen this in Mark's gospel and um, that is because uh, many of the ancient manuscripts don't have that and uh, some Bible or some scholars think that it's uh, it's an it is an exact quote of Matthew six fifteen. I said you know the scribe just moved it over there, but the ancient manuscripts don't have those. Uh, the King James has it. New American Standard has it in brackets, uh, but denotes that it's not in the early manuscripts. The NIV doesn't have it, but it has a footnote. The New King James has it, and the ESV doesn't have it. But you ever wonder you know when you're reading it and you see it go from 25 to 27, wait a minute, typo, typo. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so next week, um, hopefully that helps you understand. Hopefully that'll just radically change your prayer life like it has mine. And in our understanding of faith um, and next week we'll see that the, um, the authorities do finally decide to challenge our Lord and uh, we'll see how that goes. So,